Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 33, Ed Muzio Upgrades Managerial Teams. Welcome also to listeners from Central Luzon and Metro Manila in the Philippines. With that, let's get started. Life would be easy if all we had to do was come up with a plan and execute to it. In management, you come up with a plan and you tell other people to execute to it. Unfortunately, the reality is there's a lot of change and a lot of stuff that happens that just gets in the way. In management, you have to decide how to deal with problems and when do you deviate from the plan? When do you come up with a new plan? When, how does the plan evolve in the first place? These aren't simple things. They're very complex, and that's why you need people like Ed Muzio. Regardless if your team is at the C-suite or at the front line, he helps people and groups of people learn to adapt and learn to think systemically about problems, about what you're doing, about the big picture. And you really need that if you're going to work at the manager level or the executive level. By the way, look at the Unlabeled Leadership logo, where you see a bunch of books and a bottle that had the label torn off. If you look closely, you'll find a book called Iterate. And this is one by Ed Muzio. If you go to the show notes, you'll see that book and a link to it and his other books that he's written. Oh, and by the way, my book, Nine Practices of 21st Century Leadership, Ed wrote the foreword to it. And I got to say, he did a great job. And besides writing forwards and books, he sh- you should check out his videos. I call him the whiteboard guy because he's up in front of a whiteboard and he talks about a concept while writing to that concept. It, it's, an, it's amazing and it's not easy to do. I've tried it and it takes a lot of practice to be able to do that in front of a camera. Part one, circle the drain, teach and learn. Like all leadership principles, they sound easy, but they're a lot harder to do in practice. One of them, for example, collaborate with others, seems pretty straightforward. You set up an environment, you encourage people to collaborate, you listen, and, you know, voila, you're doing it. But it really isn't that easy. Collaboration takes time, and if you're part of a team, sometimes it's just simpler to do stuff and get stuff done, say, I need this done, and have people go and do it, or ask for help and get help. But it takes energy and effort to do collaboration sessions. So the question becomes, how do you collaborate with other people? How do you encourage other people to collaborate? And what's your role in collaboration? Well, Ed shares a story about collaboration, although he doesn't call it that. And this is about limiting how we collaborate with others. Here's Ed. I was a new-ish employee at Intel. Intel was my first job out of college. And so it was kind of my first time in a real full professional environment, you know, beyond internships and things. And I was working with a lady. She became a close friend later on. At that stage, she was more of a mentor, I think. 
I was doing some work with her. We were doing various projects in the company. And at some point we came out of a meeting that had kind of gone sideways and hadn't been very functional. And, and I think she read the frustration in my face. And the thing she said to me, I have never since replicated it with the clarity and, and effectiveness that she said it. But what she basically said, I'll, I'll get as close as I can, is she said, you know, look, Ed, if you're in a meeting like that, and you see it circling the drain, that was her phrase. If you see oh it gosh. circling the drain, you have an obligation to intervene and fix it. And it's not because of any objective sort of ethical standard or anything like that. But what I want to tell you is the obligation you have to fix it is to yourself, because if you don't fix it, you know you can, and you're stuck in the meeting and circling the drain because you didn't fix it. You know better, so do better kind of a thing. At the time, it was kind of a piece of advice to a very young professional who had some very basic kind of, you know, awareness of, are we going the right direction or not? Imagine, you know, leaping to what I do now, which is I'm working with senior executives to really morph the way the company runs and make it more effective. It's like still the same advice, right? If I'm sitting in an executive staff for a Fortune 500 company and it's going wrong or, or not going as well as it could, I can either help fix it or I can sit there and suffer. And so I think it's, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that was the setup for a lot of what became my career, which I couldn't see at the point. And like I say, she became a dear friend later on. So there's a lot more to that story, but it was a meaningful piece of advice that has never left me. The latter part is the nice addition because you want, you want to fix it for yourself. It's going to, because after the meeting is over, this is still going to affect you. No one around realizes it unless they see some frustration. They don't know if, you know, you need to, you have something else on your mind or whatever. You just can't read people's minds. If something is bothering you, if something doesn't seem right, it's going to stay with you by addressing it while it's circling the drain. It seems like a way of nipping it in the bud or, or keeping it from escalating into something really big or missing an opportunity for the business. You know, I think so. And I think from one view, there's a little bit of a selfish piece, which is, you know, you do it for yourself. But again, if I sort of take that to where kind of my career and my work has gone, I think you just said it very well, Gary, which is really a lot of what I'm doing with teams, including senior teams, is like we all have information to represent and we have to get our stuff on the table because we won't make our best possible decision if we don't do it in light of all the information. And so there's sort of a next level, I think, conclusion there, which is if me or you or anyone is sitting around in a meeting and we're not comfortable with what's going on, you know, whether it's process or whether it's content, if we don't act like we have an obligation to correct that, then we're complicit, right? You know, if, if, you, if you walk out of a meeting and say, I can't believe those people made that decision and you didn't speak up as one of those people to help influence that, either from a content perspective or a process perspective, then you're complicit in what those people did and you should say we, you know, because, because you were in it, right? I think that's the, the sort of the next level. And I don't think that was rolled into the, you know, the advice for me as a kid. Knowing her now, I think she was thinking that. And I think that's a really important point. If you're in it, you're in it. You can't be in it and not be part of it. It doesn't work that way. You're an external consultant. And when you go into a business, you're there to do what's best for the business, to help them along. And in a way, I think there's an ethical obligation to represent not only the business, but the people in the business. I can see how important this is to be able to address this for that particular reason. Definitely. My favorite situations and, and the reason I think I'm in the work I'm in is because almost always there's a big overlap between 
what's good for the business and what's good for the people. And I, I think that's, you know, depending on who you're talking to, you have to lead with one or the other. But the truth is, you know, if we go back to like what I was just saying, you've got this meeting and you're in it and you're feeling uncomfortable and you're not being heard. It's best for the organization if you speak up. It's also best for you. It's actually best for you if you are able to raise your concern. And, and in the best case scenario, you know, the leadership in the meeting, your concern is heard and you can say they heard my concern and then they decided the exact thing I don't want. That doesn't feel as we talk about it, like it would be better, but actually psychologically, it's a lot better to walk out of a meeting and go, they heard me, they went the other way. And I understand why they went the other way, as opposed to walking out of a meeting, feeling sort of shut down, cut off, detached, whatever word you want to use, because the system is so dysfunctional. I can't even get my information in there. Or it, it, you know, it, the system doesn't even know what's going on. So, so it is better. It, it is better to get, you know, the, the answer you don't want than it is not to raise the issue in most cases for job satisfaction, as well as for systemic information transfer, if you will. Switch it around. Instead of being the person that's feeling uncomfortable or frustrated, you're the person on the end making the decisions. It says so much about you when you recognize that there's a voice that's not being heard, being able to say, I value what you have to say. If this does not work for you, say it, then you reinforce that by you know allowing them to have their voice and respecting that. For sure. One of the key elements of the decision process that, that I'm teaching and using and, and you know intervening culturally with organizations is what I call a teach and learn process, which is when you're in the phase of the decision where the decider has not yet decided what you want, if you're the decider, is to take a teach and learn approach, which is don't try and convince me, teach me what you know. And so what that does for the decider is it puts them in a mode of being able to say, okay, you've taught me this fact, or you've taught me that this is upsetting to you, or you've taught me that you really don't think this should go that way. Am I getting it? Is there something else I haven't gotten yet? And really make that person feel heard. And again, this is, you know, feeling heard is a positive thing in its own right. It makes the person feel good. You can also take it as information movement. That's how you get the best information. Once that person can report feeling heard, you know, they have provided all their information and you know, you've gotten it at least as best as they can tell. And so that means you're more informed. And so if you're the decider, what you want to be is as informed as you can, so you can make the best decision you can. And that starts with teaching and learning. It, it does not start with, let's see where everybody is, you know, convince me the other way, or let's take a poll. All of that goes to politicking, goes to other group problems, but teach and learn stays on information and it stays on, on listening and it stays on best equipping the decider to make the decision while it's equipping the people to realize they were heard because they were. I love it. Teach, learn, and grow. There you go. Part two, being strategic as a tactic. Being an executive is hard work. It's challenging. As I said in the introduction, if you're an executive and all you had to do was come up with a plan and then have others execute to it, your life would be easy. But there's constant change. Even growth, there's a lot of change and there's a lot of pain with growth. So how do you deal with that? How do you adapt? How do you look at it systemically? Well, Ed talks about a group that he's helped and some patterns he's seen with executives and how they handle change. Here's Ed. So this is sort of a combination of a couple of people, but it's, it's a pattern I've seen among senior executives. I'm thinking of a couple in particular, and I think it really has helped me to sort of think through an effective behavior at that 
level. So I'll share it with you, see what you think. Okay. Here's the situation. You've got a person, you know, a CEO, a president, a founder running a company. It's kind of a late stage startup. It's got a couple hundred employees, maybe. It's got reasonably good funding. It's in a big growth mode. And you've got an executive team, you know, of let's say five to 10 people, really smart people. They've been there, you know, since it was smaller. They're taking this thing in a good direction. They've had success. Then you've got these other sort of looming things of, you know, investors and the next market, whatever's going to happen there. And, and, you know, maybe going public or maybe, you know, the next round of funding or maybe the first product release or, you know, there's all these sort of other moving parts. This person, this executive is running this meeting full of strong-willed, smart people and they're pedaling harder and harder and harder and they're going faster and faster and faster. It's just getting more challenging. And I think there's a real temptation I've seen, and I've seen it go this way too, to just pedal harder, to ask for more, to do more, to add another person. You know, over the years, these people, and maybe I'm biased because they become my clients, you know, I've seen people in this position really do an effective job of kind of stopping, maybe not with their team, maybe just alone in their personal reflection time, but basically saying, you know, this is a system. My job is not to do the work or to get the work done this way. My job is to get the work done, period. And so as the complexity has grown, as things have changed, what does the system need? What they do is they talk to me or someone like me or their own people, but they basically stop and go, I'm going to carve out time, which is almost impossible from the day to day, which is now taking more and more of my hours. And I'm going to ask the question, how do we do this better? What's happened, the ones I'm thinking of, you know, they engaged with me, they engaged with somebody else, they, they looked at systems internally, you know, all of the above, and it really makes a difference. So, you know, a couple of examples I can name. One of them, you know, within a month, like a month, the staff had gone from kind of arguing and debating and looking at things that were scheduled to happen over the next, let's say, four to eight weeks to arguing and focusing and debating on things that were scheduled to happen, let's say, over the next 12 to 18 months. Right. So they started really pushing down the day to day and really getting themselves to look further out because they realized, oh, if we don't look out there, nobody looks out there. Within a few months, the staff had like wholesale changed how they were looking at goals and plans and forecasts. A key part of my work is spend your time looking forward and looking at the difference between what you currently expect versus what you previously expected and, and what to do about that. And we can talk more about that. The point is rather than sort of tracking what was done until now, this executive and this team moved into a mode of looking forward to what we see coming and to what extent we expect that to happen the way we thought or hoped or needed it to. And what do we do about that today? All of these are what I would call system upgrades, right? N none of that happens by working harder. None of that happens by pushing harder on the people that work for you. None of that happens by adding a team member to pick up some slack. It only happens by the person in charge being open to someone. And by the way, it's never me first. It's always someone on their team first who says, let's look at this. You know, if I'm in there, it's because that person says, talk to this guy, right? It's a way that they say the system needs help. The system is different than the work. The system is different than the people and it needs help. And I think that I, I would wager that is a key behavior of successful executives, because if you don't do that and you go too far down the line of work harder, it just gets progressively more difficult to step back. And, and certainly we all know stories of groups that weren't able to step back and that kind of, you know, imploded or there's a big sort of a fallback for a while till they regroup. And, and the way to avoid that, I think, is to catch it earlier.
the first thing that came to my mind, especially with the first story, is the shift from being tactical to being more strategic and to think about the whole system, like you're saying, you know, your system upgrades, start thinking about that instead of necessarily the, the details of the people and who are doing the job. You know, I think it's easy to say, and I think it's right. You're absolutely right, right? Like be less tactical, be more strategic. And I don't think anyone in any executive position has not been either told that and or told people that. I think it's it's not always so easy to do. And I think the idea of separating even the quote unquote tactical that we're doing, our tactics are to look further forward. So it's not that we're going to go off and have a one day offsite and sort of ponder the future. It's that on a regular basis, we are looking this far forward. I think that's one of the key values that I add probably as an outside person, but one of the key things that makes a successful team successful because they entrench it into their daily work. So it's, it's almost like you're saying it right, be strategic, but it's like be strategic all day, every day as a tactic instead of take a day off and be strategic. I had a client that is this within the Fortune 100 where the executives said that they were being strategic, said they, they were doing that, but they were being tactical. And then this phrase came up, well, we may not be tactical or strategic. Hey, we're stratactical. <laughs> Somewhere in between. The people in the executive grew up in the company where they were all about operations, doing the day-to-day, -day, getting things done. And it was so hard to make that shift. But what I'm hearing you saying is that you need to find some time to integrate this into how your outlook, into all your actions, and having some reflection time to be able to do that, make that time. Absolutely. One of the reasons I get to have a job is because I, I know how to help groups do that while they're working, as opposed to, you know, with several days off, because it's hard to do it with several days off. But I think I love the stratactical idea where it's like, wait, what, what does it mean? You can get really lost in language in this work. And actually, you know, if, if you know anything about like Lean Six Sigma, you know that they borrowed a bunch of language from another language like Muda and, you know, those kind of things, because language is such a challenge. And I have the same problem where it's like, if I talk about anything, you know, have a dashboard or make decisions or group decisions or whatever, like all of the terms are burdened. And so that strategic versus tactical, it's so, it's so burdened, you know, that you can argue over what the words mean. And, and what I found and part of sort of my secret sauce for getting it to happen is I really just want to talk about the behaviors that are going on because we know which behaviors sort of lead to the, the right kind of focus. And we don't know how to talk about being more strategic in a way that is helpful, but we do know how to look at what's going on in your meeting. How do you make decisions? You know, what kind of data are you looking at? How clear are the goals? How, how do the linkage works between the different part of the organization? That to me is the place I can help, but you're absolutely right. Where we land is yes, more strategic. And, and if you ask any of those people, you know, at the back end, they'd say, we got a lot more strategic. Yeah, at the beginning of this, the way you described it was just a way of de demystifying this strategy tactic jargon. You know, you just nicely stated it in simple behavioral terms and that, you know, you need to shift from looking at the people. How can you get them to pedal faster? Instead, look at what's going on and how can you make a better pedal so we don't have to pedal faster or we can move faster without pedaling harder. Right. Yeah. The, the, the behavior conversation is always easier and the, the sort of philosophy conversation is always more interesting, but the behavior conversation in my experience is what gets you to results because otherwise you get hung up in sort of dueling philosophies, which is interesting. And I've gotten caught up myself many times in those conversations, but they don't really move the needle the way behavioral sort of cultural pattern adjustment 
move the needle. That's, you know, that's what the work is. Part three, the status game versus future focused. If you're part of a team, most likely you have team meetings. Sometimes these are every week, every other week, but you get together. Why? Why do you get together? Is it to update everyone on what's going on with the business? Is it to talk about some new directions or new directives for the team? Well, Ed has some thoughts about what you do at team meetings. And he challenges you to really think about the purpose of your meetings. Again, here's Ed. If you're a person who runs a team, especially a team of other managers or a more senior team, but really any team, get away from the game of narrative updates in your regular meetings, your staff meetings, your team meetings, whatever. You know, a narrative update is, I'm going to come in and show you some slides about what I'm doing, right? And, and it's a lot of status and it's a lot of what's already happened. And, and move your format, move your agenda, move your focus, whatever you want to call it, to discussions about recommendations for something we can do today to impact what we see coming in the future. So if someone, you know, instead of me coming in and making a 10-slide presentation about what I'm doing right now, give me three minutes to say the biggest variance I see in the future is between this thing we want to happen and here's how I see it going and here's what I recommend we do. Because then you'll be spending your time listening to each other, talking to each other, making coordinated decisions, because that's why you have a team in the first place, and and spending less time sort of opining about the future and sort of trying to look interested when somebody else is talking through probably more detail than you need about what they're doing or trying to sort of poke holes in it or all the sort of weird stuff that happens in, in that kind of statusing game that goes on in, in so many meetings. I think related to that, and the only other thing I'll share is it gets easier to do that if the people in the group are, are using some version of goals and outputs and things that allow them to look forward a little bit and allow them to say, you know, here's the thing I'm trying to do and how I sort of plan for it to go. And here now is, is what I'm seeing differently. So if, if people are blind to that, it's harder to do. There's a lot of ways you can do that. But I think if you, if you as the team leader or the group leader or the manager or leader require your people to come in with that information, that goes a long way toward them finding ways to do it. You know, in a sense, you're saying job aid or performance support, you're giving them some structure to think not only about what's going on now, but how do you change the future today? And what are some things that we should be considering as a group? That's right. And it gets a little deep. And I mean, there's sort of three or four appendices in, in my book about sort of different types of work and how you might chart that. And you can go down that rabbit hole and it's worth doing. But I think, you know, the step before that is, is what you just said, which is to say, all we can really do around here is sit around and make decisions. And so the only decisions that are really of value are decisions we make today to do something differently today or not based upon the impact we see in the future of that decision. Everything else you're doing, some of it's useful, like learning from the past, that's okay. You know, like getting to know each other a little better, team building, that's all fine. But if you're not spending a good percentage of your time making those kind of future focused decisions, then you could, you know, from my perspective, you start to ask, well, why do you have that team? You know, is it just to update each other? That, that doesn't seem like that great a use of a team. I, I think that's the highest use of the team is, is the forward-looking decision. And it seems like this is something that's applicable at multiple levels. For example, a CEO talking to employees, 
a business unit executive talking to their employees, someone who's a frontline manager talking to the six or seven employees. Absolutely. Yeah. The, there is a very sort of strong mythology, I would call it out there, yeah. that the executive teams need different stuff because they have different challenges. And I suppose that's true in some areas. You know, they certainly have more responsibility to set vision and things like that. But in the work I'm doing, what we need is culture. We need consistent patterns of behavior. You know, do the executives face different problems? Absolutely. The scope is bigger. What I call the level of abstraction is higher, right? I have six people in the room each of whom controls multi-million dollars and hundreds of people, or at least some of them do, right? I go down to the organization level, you know, two levels down, three levels down. I'm with a frontline manager and seven employees, or I'm with, like you said, a middle manager and, you know, controlling a little piece of the division, let's say. But that process of here's how I've mobilized the resources under my control, and here's the direction I'm trying to take and what I'm trying to produce from an output perspective for the broader organization. And here's what I see as how that's going now and how that future result is probably going to differ than what I was trying to do. And here's my recommendation about what we as a team should do in a coordinated method about that. That process works at all of those levels. And that process needs to happen at all those levels so that you know the goals come down, the forecasts go up, and every level is kind of cycling between goals and forecasts and saying, okay, what do we need to adjust? You know, what do we need to kick up to the next level? What can we handle here so that the system is, is integrated? Consistent patterns of behaviors, that is such a incredible way of saying we can affect our culture by instituting or introducing these types of patterns of behaviors, which is culture itself. So it's a way of that you can influence and manage the culture of your organization and how your people interact. It's pretty, this is pretty deep. It's, 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 we try to be deep where we can, Gary, you know, but seriously, there is so much out there on culture that I think is noisy, but the, the simple thing that I would say is not only can you impact your culture, you are impacting your culture. You are reteaching yesterday's patterns of behavior today. And so you get to be conscious or not about that. And you get to you know, choose something different that works better and try that and see if people see it and copy it or not. Or you get to be blithely ignorant and keep doing whatever you've been doing without questioning it. But whatever you choose, you are still propagating a culture. So, you know, my thing is always, well, why not, why not pick one that's good? Propagate that one. My thanks to Ed Muzio. If you'd like to learn more about Ed, go to the show notes. If you'd like to leave a comment or a question, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and you can leave up to a one-minute message. Maybe I'll play it on the air. I'd like to thank those who support the show. It's very helpful for uh, supporting the music. And eventually we want to get to the point where we can add transcripts automatically. But mostly I'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time, lead on. <laughs>